Today's podcast, we're lucky to have on our first international guest, Roger Crowley, who is from the UK. He's the New York Times bestselling author of Empires of the Sea. His other work includes 1453, City of Fortune, How Venice Ruled the Seas, Conquerors, How Portugal Forged the First Global Empire, and his most recent book is The Accursed Tower, The Fall of Acre, and The End of the Crusades. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Riley. I'm delighted to be here. And just to start off, uh, just some intro questions. What is your favorite part of history uh, to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And why have you focused so much on the late medieval period? I'm particularly interested in med Mediterranean history and maritime history. Some of this is autobiographical. My dad was a naval officer. And when I was a child, we went to live on the island of Malta. But beyond that, um, my fascination with the Mediterranean world really is it's the cradle of European civilization. It's a meeting place of cultures and faiths. It's spawned Christianity, Greek philosophy, and, and great empires from the time of the Romans onwards. And it's, it's a kind of an intense arena. It's very small, really, um, uh, of, for trade, uh, the interactions of peoples, imperial clashes. Uh, a lot happens here, and, and really the development of of Europe and the West. A lot of this springs out of, of this this small sea. Uh, <clears throat> my um, my interest in, in period really, yeah, is that what you might call the late medieval to early modern period, about 1400 to 1600. I I, I, I don't draw strict rules on this. I've just written a book about the, uh, the end of the Crusades. But um, mm -hmm. I think the reason why this fascinated me really was that we see the development of European trade in this period, the Venetians and the Genoese, uh, the re-emergence of religious war between Islam and Christianity, um, great imperial struggles. Um, we also see the kind of uh, explosion of the age of discoveries. Uh, you know, this is the point actually when Europe leaves Europe, uh, you know, with Columbus at the end of the 15th century. So there's a lot going on here. It's very rich uh, and very... Um, full of incident. The other thing that actually is very valuable to me uh, as a writer is the invention of printing, because when I wrote a book about the fall of Constantinople, the sources for this were about nine. And once we get the other side of printing, we start to get quite a lot of sources, but hopefully not too many. And, you know, rather like uh, the internet in, in accelerating what people can write and disseminate and so on, printing does that. And we get in the 16th century, you know, much more written material, but not too much, you know, enough to cope with, but not too much to swamp you. So those are kind of factors that kind of make it an interesting period. It's a break point, undoubtedly a break point period in world history, uh, you know, with the, the Columbus era, uh, the end of the medieval world. And to follow up on that, what are some of the challenges that you have encountered while researching this period and just history in general? They come in different shapes and forms, really. One is linguistic in, in that uh, it's for me, it's really important to get a primary source material and to do that. And because I've chosen to write about the Mediterranean world with, with its many different languages, uh, language is an issue. I'm, I'm not a great linguist, but I have patiently taught myself to read a large and quite a number of languages, which I just can't actually speak very well. But there are limits. Once I get to uh, Ottoman Turkish or to Arabic, you know, I give up and I have to find a translator. 
Um, people say, why don't you get somebody to translate for you? But actually, I don't know what I want to read until I've read it myself. So that's one factor. I don't do any archival research. That's very specialist. And, you know, I couldn't even read, uh, you know, Vasco da Gama's Columbus's signature, really. It's very patient kind of postgraduate grad work. So I really draw on um, printed sources. From the point of view of writing about uh, Islam and Christianity, one of the big problems is the imbalance of evidence. We get a vast amount of evidence written, first-hand accounts written by Europeans, by Western people, autobiographical accounts of what they did, where they were, what they you know, what they saw, what happened to them. We can't always be sure that these people were telling the truth, but they are telling us what they wanted to see. Unfortunately, from the um, Islamic point of view, there isn't the same uh, tradition of written uh, first-hand accounts. I think a lot of this stuff is much more oral. And the accounts that you get, say, from the Turkish sources are very flamboyant and general but they don't really tell you very much therefore if you're trying to tell a balanced story most of the time i'm trying to read through the christian accounts to kind of to try and work out actually what the would say what the ottomans were, were actually actually felt and, and did so it's quite difficult to you know to tell uh, a, a historical narrative from both sides and to try and keep it honest as to not not fall into too biased a perspective those, I think, are the main challenges that I faced. Uh-huh. And the, obviously doing some intro stuff, we'll switch gears into what we're talking about today, which is the uh, conflicts between the Ottomans and the Christians in the late medieval period. And uh, just to start off uh, explaining, can you explain just some of the people that were involved there? And I'll point out some of the specific ones, their leadership styles, how they rose to the power. And uh, can you start off with uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, uh, who he was? Yeah, we call him Suleiman the Magnificent. Uh, in Turkish, they call him Suleiman the, the Lawgiver, the Lawmaker, uh, which is a kind of indication of how they saw him as as a, a, a just Sultan. Suleiman was the son of the last Sultan. Um, he had a, a slice of good luck in that he was the only surviving son of the last sultan. Um, usually, uh, when there's a succession, there are a number of sons, they fight it out, one wins and kills all the others. But he had a kind of seamless uh, uh, um, succession, and this made life easier for him, really. He was um, uh, considered to be uh, very um, balanced, uh, very, a very sober man. His name, uh, Suleiman Solomon, uh, the wise, uh, the lawgiver, um, and he had a long, well-ordered reign for 40 years. Um, like all sultans at this period, when he comes to power, you have to uh, uh, cement the legitimacy of your rule with conquest. So Suleiman's reign really falls into two bits. The first bit is uh, seeking out and trying to expand the Ottoman Empire with... Um, uh, into Europe, and um, he's also obviously driven by religious motivation as well, but he has imperial uh, ambitions, which are going to bring him into direct conflict with uh, the great imperial counter figure of, of the time, Charles V. Um, his reign really falls into two parts. 
One is a period in which he's f quite flamboyant, uh, outward going uh, and um, concerned with glory and uh, with uh, the trappings of um, secular power, if you like. And the second part, when he becomes a kind of much more haunted religious figure who um, who uh, rather retreats from the world and is re re rarely seen in public. But in the first half of, of his reign, he leads from the front. He led a dozen campaigns himself. And so he was there with the men um, uh, leading armies uh, and so forth. In the second half of, of his reign, he becomes a kind of slightly more gloomy and introverted uh, figure uh, because uh, the burdens of, of empire are always huge. But he's a fascinating uh, man. He's the most respected of all sultans uh, in uh, the Tur Turkish historiography. And he's the man whom the Turks see as the father figure of a golden age of uh, their history. Now, I know you mentioned him briefly, but on the opposite side, you have Charles V. Uh, who is was he and can you kind of just follow up on who was he as a leader and uh, ruler? Yeah, Charles uh, was born in 1500. Uh, Charles, Duke of Burgundy, uh, by complicated dynastic succession, he becomes the inheritor of the largest domain in Europe, the Habsburg Empire, which effectively covers Spain, southern Italy, large chunks of Central Europe, the ne and the Netherlands, a kind of checkerboard of principalities, a vast a domain. Um, he becomes uh, the uh, ruler of this at the age of 17. And um, he comes to Spain to take up a, a large part of inheritance uh, at that time. He, he didn't speak any Spanish at the time. In uh, 1519, he becomes, uh, he's elected to the very important kind of um, honorific title of the Holy Roman Empire. I think a certain amount of bribery was involved. This gives him enormous prestige and is going to make him secular champion of Catholic Europe versus Islam and against the heretics. He's uh, personally very brave. He again leads armies into battle and even more so than Suleiman, he fights fight in the front, front line. Um, he leads armies in person. He um, he also has a reign which uh, kind of deteriorates into uh, a sort of uh, personal breakdown almost with the burdens of, of office. But he is also a very strange looking man with, a, I think, something to do with Habsburg uh, inbreeding and an elongated jaw. He was kind of a strange man to look at, but he was honest, uh, brave, and he did his best for the enormous principalities he in, uh, inherited with a vast number of problems. And to follow up on some of the military commanders and other people involved, uh, who was uh, Barbarossa? Barbarossa was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Barbarossa was a Muslim piratical adventure, uh, adventurer. Uh, there were two brothers, Oruj and Hazur. Um, Hosea Hayratin, who uh, the Europeans call Barbarossa, Redbeard, typical pirate name, came from Lesbos on the, uh, the Greek island, uh, 
from a kind of interestingly mixed uh, background. His father was a an Ottoman soldier. His mother was the widow of uh, uh, an Orthodox Greek priest. Um, they um, became uh, one of them became captured by uh, the Knights of St John and forced to work in uh, as a slave for quite a long time. This fires up a deep hatred of the Christian world. They set out. Uh, they were good sailors. They set out to make their fortunes by sailing, sailing west uh, along the coast of North Africa. And they set themselves up as, as pirates and as pirate kings waging informal war <clears throat> uh, against Christian Europe. They become, oh, and Hyratine, or which is killed actually quite early on by the Spanish, Hyratine becomes uh, a frontline uh, warrior effectively, in the contest between Suleiman and Charles V in Spain. And eventually, he rises to one of the great positions of Ottoman uh, power. He becomes the Sultan's Admiral and goes from being a kind of freelance outsider to part of the Ottoman establishment, a man who uh, was deeply feared by uh, all the coastal communities of Spain and Italy a man who struck fear into Christian hearts and who lives a long and healthy life and dies in his bed uh, and was really a corner, a key figure in um, Suleiman's Mediterranean ambitions because he was a great sailor and a great admiral. Uh, the final person I was interested in, uh, since he can't cover everyone involved in this, uh, who is uh, Don Garcia? Uh, Don Garcia de Toledo was a wise and experienced Spanish seaman. Um, uh, Philip uh, of Spain um, made him after um, Charles after Charles's death. He was captain of the sea. He understood uh, sea warfare, um, and um, he was also viceroy of uh, Sicily during a critical period around the siege of Malta, which gave him oversight of the whole of the central. Mediterranean. And he uh, was going to provide Don Juan of Austria, who was going to be the leader at the Battle of Lepanto, with very wise uh, naval advice on the tactics he should employ. Um, in point of fact, he was cautious, and he considered the Battle of Lepanto when it comes to be a very risky thing. But he was a sane, uh, experienced and wise counsellor in maritime affairs to the Spanish kings. So we covered some of the people involved with this, um, and that definitely wanted to follow up on some background of what Europe was looking off and what was going on. Uh, but to start off, what did Europe look like at the time uh, of the fall of Constantinople in 1453? Uh, the, well, the Ottomans are pushing uh, into the Balkans and starting to snap out uh, Albania, uh, Serbia, uh, and uh, establishing a presence in Europe. At the same time, Islam is retreating at the other end of Europe. Uh, the Spanish, um, uh, Al-Andalus, the uh, Spanish uh, Islamic kingdom is becoming under increasing pressure from uh, Spanish uh, and European conquistadors pushing down into Spain 
so that by 1453, there is just that one little state of Granada in the south, which is about to be obliterated. Europe is recovering from the Black Death. Trade is picking up. The uh, great maritime powers of uh, Genoa and Venice are trading, and indeed they're trading very happily with the Islamic world. Um, uh, Europe is also coming to the end of a titanic struggle between uh, the Plantagenet kings of England and the Valois kings of France, the Hundred Years' War. Uh, Central Europe is, uh, is organized around a Holy Roman Empire, and um, we're seeing the rise of city-states, powerful city-states in, uh, in Italy, Milan, Bologna, Florence, and so on. Uh, Europe is becoming more prosperous again, but there is also a fierce competition between uh, the, ru the rulers of Europe. Uh, and we're starting to see the formation of nation states happening. And <clears throat> how did the Ottoman Empire, after it took the city of Constantinople, how did it begin to expand? It um, pushes up into uh, Europe. And um, one by one, uh, it, it establishes forward positions uh, so it's, it pushing, it's really pushing up into the Balkans. At the same time, uh, it starts to snuff out the last, once snuff out the last remaining uh, ports and bases, which uh, the Venetians hold in Greece, very, which are very important uh, to Venetian sea power. And um, this, these will give them footholds in the Mediterranean which will allow them to develop Mediterranean ambitions. At the same time, we have to remember that uh, in, in this period, and indeed throughout the 16th century, we, we tend to think of the Ottoman Empire as fighting wars against Europe. It was also fighting continuous wars against the Shia Shahs of Persia. So it's fighting wars on two fronts. Um, it will also push down into, into Egypt. It will destroy the last Mamluk dynasty, uh, in 1517, and so it, it, it's expanding rapidly and also across along the coast of North Africa as well. It's in a massively expansive phase. And on the flip side of that, the Habsburg dynasty seemed to have influence and control of a lot of different straits all across Europe. How were they able to do that and how did that come to be? Well, that came to be as a result of dynastic marriages. Um, the answer is with great difficulty because a lot of these um, these principalities are, we talk about the Spanish Netherlands which is a very weird concept Spanish Netherlands uh, ruled by um, ruled, ruled from Spain and they had a kind of communication corridor through the center of Europe uh, but it was unwieldy and there would come a point when uh, Charles V would uh, pass control of the uh, Austro-Hungarian part of the empire to the management of his brother, Ferdinand, because the burden of managing these disconnected principalities, um, southern, uh, southern Italy and Sicily, so some of these places had to be tied together by sea power, some of them had to be tied together by troops making vast marches across Europe, and it was obviously impossible uh, for um, Charles and his successor Philip, who had decided that Spain was the place where they had to be, 
to, to manage all this. So the, the, the authority was uh, passed over to, to other parts of the family in, in Eastern Europe. But this is, a, this is a strategic problem. These are not connected places and they are going to have enemies all along the way, particularly from the Valois uh, kings of France. Uh, so the burdens of managing this and the bureaucratic challenge is enormous. At the same time, of course, they're expanding into the new world. So they, they're doing things on effectively far too many fronts. Mm -hmm. And do you think the conflicts between the Christian world and the Ottomans was inevitable after the fall of Constantinople? I think it was, and I think um, this is really uh, because at either end of the Mediterranean, uh, to a certain extent, this is a religious war. And certainly if you're the Holy Roman Emperor, as Charles V was, the defense of, of Christendom was critical. And there was a feeling that step by step, the Ottomans were going to advance into um, uh the, uh, the destroy one after another uh, the, the front line. And they had a kind of sort of mental uh, image of a fort with uh, Europe being a fort with outer works. And as each um, layer of defenses fell, you, there would be a retreat. At the same time, we've got two characters, uh, Suleiman, who has imperial uh, ambitions as well as religious ambitions and Charles who's came to um, Spain with the words with the word further uh, emblazoned on his sails and both of these people are, are people with expansive imperial ambitions so this is going to be both a religious fight and uh, and a, uh, and a uh, an imperial contest so you kind of answered my next question, so I'll just skip it. But uh, what were some of the challenges facing the Ottomans in the Mediterranean and in southeastern Europe? The challenges in the Mediterranean were that they were very good at, at maritime stuff, quite honestly. That's one reason um, that they, uh, you know, in order to, to remove the bases that uh, the Venetians had on the coast of, of Greece, they had to slog all the way around uh, Greece and attack them from the land. Um, they also have no maritime bases uh, at, uh, in the initial phase. Uh, so, uh, and the, the the Ottomans are really people of the they're, they're nomadic people of the steppes. Then they're not seafaring types. So um, that is a lack of experience in maritime warfare. Um, the other challenge they have, which is a general one, is that. The further they advance into Europe, the longer their supply lines uh, are. Although, as they take places like Belgrade uh, and so on, they can have a, a military forts and a front line. It's traditional for each army to set out on campaign from Istanbul, which means that the further north you go, the further you have to travel before you can expand your, your empire and the shorter time you have for campaigning. So these are these are strategic and um, uh, logistical challenges. And also, at the same time, as I said earlier, they've also got this counter pressure a war with the Shia in uh, in Persia. So um, the terrain uh, in Europe is tricky. Um, 
if you if you're going to have any campaigning season you set out in the spring, uh, it's very tough dragging cannons across boggy ground, uh, across vast rivers. These are t these are testing logistical operations. So it's not easy. None of this is easy. And on the flip side of that, what were some of the challenges facing the Habsburgs and the Christians in the Mediterranean and the southeastern Europe? Well, for the Habsburgs, as I said earlier, they're they're fighting on many fronts. Uh, they're um, they're having to uh, they're going to have to uh, deal with tr trouble in the Netherlands. Um, they're going to have to deal with a vast amount of piracy in North Africa. Their their dominions are fragmented and. It's very hard to move troops around. Um, uh, they, uh, there's a, as far as Christendom is concerned, there is a lack of any unified response. Um, the French are the French kings are bitter enemies of the Habsburgs. There was a great deal of jealousy about who became Holy Roman Emperor. Um, the Venetians. Uh, really are not interested in holy war at all. They want to trade with the Islamic world. Uh, the um, uh, the, uh, the harassing of the courses, they said, is a, is a major problem. So they're having to do too many things on too many fronts. And uh, the, uh, the, the, but so there is no fragmented, unified Christian uh, initiative available at this time. People are starting to think more about nation states rather than uh, Christian uh, commitment to crusade. So it's going to be fragmented, disjointed and complicated for the Habsburgs to act effectively. And what kind of advantages did each side have in these conflicts? Well, uh, the um, in the Mediterranean, the uh, Habsburgs have uh, a lot of bases uh, dotted across in a line from the Balearic Islands, Majorca, Menorca, Sardinia, Sicily, Malta, uh, Crete, although Crete's Venetian, Rhodes. So they're they're able to connect their uh, seafaring activities across the sea they're also they also have a deeper pool of experience in uh, fighting um uh the um the ottomans at sea as far as land is concerned uh the uh in the austro-hungarian uh empire they're fighting on home soil albeit with some um you know, where we, again, it's, it's quite fragmented, but so they, they, they do have some advantages in this contest. And uh, what about the Ottomans? What kind of advantages did they have? They have a unified command structure under one man, uh, uh, a very well-organized empire, deep human and natural resources, uh, they co-opt the manpower and the resources of every new uh, piece of land that they uh, conquer. So, for example, when they take Greece, they hoover up a lot of uh, uh, experienced Greek maritime skill. Um, uh, 
They co-opt people from the Balkans into their armies. Uh, they also, we think of the Ottomans as great fighters, but they have a very well-organized bureaucratic system for uh, good registers of, of, of population, of resources, and they can put together uh, armies really quite quickly. Uh, so they're much, much better organized on a logistical and operational level than the rather chaotic activities of their opponents. And did the Ottomans or Christians have a sort of grand strategy when it came to fighting one another? Were they looking, was either side looking to take a specific city or kingdom, or is it simply to take the next place on the map? For the, um, for the Ottomans, there's kind of like incremental um, uh, advance. Um, as somebody said at the time of fall of Constantinople, the uh, Ottoman advance never falters. Like the sea, it always rolls. There's a virtuous circle here. You take more land, uh, you get land to, to reward your soldiers with, you get more resources. So the expansion uh, is hardwired both into the Ottoman uh, system, but also into... Um, Islamic system, the idea that the worldwide spread of Islam was inevitable. Uh, Suleiman has an objective, which is an imperial one, a very ambitious one, which is to take Rome and that to and to be to become Caesar. This great imperial uh, title. He wants to be the, he wants to be Caesar. So these are um, the these are, are 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 his motivations. They have a much better developed. A land strategy than a sea strategy, and the sea strategy only develops gradually over a period of time. And oh, sorry, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I just got to follow up on like the the Christian side of things. But um, Charles has a has a has a symmetrical strategy to be the guardian of the uh, Christian world, and uh, he has a symmetrical. <laughs> A sort of fantasy ambition of taking back Constantinople um, and uh, and for being and providing the front line in um, both, both uh, within the um, maritime arena but also within uh, the Balkans uh, to uh, ring uh, Europe in defensive forts uh, and really to hold, hold the front line through a kind of fortress policy. So um, he, he also was, you know, contesting an idea of personal glory with Suleiman. But um, so, yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of symmetrical ambitions, I think, in a way. And were there any European powers who supported the Ottomans or made treaties with the Ottomans in order to advance their own geopolitical interests against the Habsburgs or any other Christian kingdoms fighting against the Ottomans? Yes, uh, the French uh, are always uh, out of step with everybody else. And there comes a point um, in um, the 1540s when... The, the French give uh, the Ottomans bases in Toulon and the south of France, and they have treaties 
with uh, the Ottomans, for which they're derided by the rest of Europe. There's also a, a, a more distant sense in which uh, the pressure that the Ottomans were uh, applying to the Habsburgs were beneficial to the Protestant rebellion, rebellion in the Netherlands. And they were, if you like, uh, sort of covertly uh, sort of encouraging, I think, to the Ottoman project and uh, were prone to uh, seek moments to rebel when the Ottomans are on the move. So there is no unified position here. We also have to say that the Venetians were not, and to a certain extent the Genoese, were not the slightest bit interested in helping a, um, a Christian cause. They are treacherously, from the point of view of the papacy, trading with the Islamic world, both in Alexandria and Egypt, but also with the sultans in Istanbul, and probably supplying them with war materials. So there are a vast number of different vested interests in, in Christian Europe, which are very, very hard to align in, in, in any kind of organized opposition to the, the great terror of the Turk as they saw it. And how costly was it for these empires to build, train, and support their militaries? There was a Milanese um, Jean Marshall uh, called Trivulcio in 1499 who said that only three things are required for warfare, money, money, and money. And the answer was that uh, the costs were enormously high. Um, uh, for the Ottomans, the problems were, were slightly less so because, as I mentioned, had this virtuous circle of conquest, giving land to people, rewarding them. Uh, so they're trying to reward, they're trying to pay for their wars out of conquest, recruiting slave armies. But um, all the same, war is expensive. Raw materials are expensive. And um, sea warfare was particularly expensive. It drains the coffers of both the Habsburgs and the uh, and the Ottomans. Um, the cost of building ships—you can't stand ships down very easily. You have to keep them active all the time. Manpower is always a problem because people die very quickly on ships. Um, there are also enormous inflationary pressures uh, in the start of the 16th century. Once gold starts to flow into the uh, new from the new world, prices go up. Um, for example, the cost of maintaining a ship is actually higher than the cost of building it because you have to keep the guys alive and you have to feed them quite a good diet if they're going to row galleys. Uh, one of the most important ingredients in keeping them alive was the supply of ship's biscuit. The cost of ship's biscuit went up fourfold in 60 years. And so these are expensive machines to run. Procurement of supplies. Um, it's, it's said that when Solomon finally starts to mount a seaborne expedition to Malta, this took up uh, in one year 30% of his treasury income. So um, both sides are, are, are really 
uh, fighting a long-range war which is going to drain their coffers and we're going to see the ends of this towards the end of the 16th century after Lepanto. And how were the Ottomans able to build a navy and use it effectively given that they hadn't really done this before? Well, for the reason that I said earlier, they were very good at recruiting or or co-opting people. So they would uh, they would recruit or order, say, Greek shipwrights. Probably most of their ships were probably built by Greeks or, or renegades. People you, within this world, there are people who had skills who thought, I can get a better deal on the other side of the fence. So you get uh, Venetian shipbuilders, for example, in uh, Istanbul, uh, and you get cannon founders from Western Europe. You get, um, you get uh, corsairs who started out as Italians. So they're recruiting or co- uh, co-opting intellectual capital. At the same time, because of their bureaucratic system, they can put together the natural resources, they can order up the manpower, you know, they will, or can order up, uh, you know, a thousand Anatolian peasants to come and row ships, just like that. Um, uh, because the Sultan's power is ultimate. So they can bring together these resources quite quickly and in quite large numbers. They've got fantastic supplies of timber uh, in Anatolia. They have access to uh, pitch from, uh, you know, uh, from uh, the Black Sea. Um, they, can, uh, they can draw on all the material elements and they were good at bringing them together. So they, they're smart guys and they were quick learners. And... After, for example, Barbarossa began to increase his piracy activities, why were the Christian? Why did the Christians struggle to respond to the threat posed by piracy activities and by the Ottoman navy in general? I think um, there are a number, lack of central control is one thing. I think um, that uh, they had to coordinate over quite big distances. Uh, you. You, uh, you've got a, uh, you've got a kingdom in Spain, and you've got a kingdom in southern uh, Italy, and you've got a hostile country in between whose bases you can't use. France. Um, they, uh, the, the corsairs of North Africa had an extraordinary advantage, which was that when the Spanish pushed a lot of their Islamic population out of Spain. They went to North Africa. These people are enormously knowledgeable about the coast of Spain. They could tell the Corsairs exactly where to raid, when to raid, and they could spring an element of surprise on um, uh, on the uh, on Spain uh, and on, say, the Balearic Islands or Sardinia or Sicily, and. Um, The greater expertise of some of these courses, there's also something in the winds, actually, that make it much easier to mount an attack from North Africa over to uh, Spain than it is to mount an attack from Spain over uh, to North uh, North Africa. Uh, They're also, um, because uh, they didn't have um, the, the... they were hiring freelancers, if you like. Um, the captain general of the sea for Charles was Andrea Doria, who was a Genoese kind of mercenary who would kind of sell himself to the highest bidder. He'd actually been the captain general of the French 
king for a while. And he, um, the, the problem with mercenaries is that they have their own interests as well as your interests. And the problem for Doria was that he actually was the, uh, his galley feet, fleet was his private property. And therefore he's extremely cautious. He's not going to take undue risks in a sea battle with his own property. So they're kind of hampered by long supply lines, um, uh, the knowledge that the South African pirates had by um, the, uh, the, the use of, of trying to hire guys rather than have their own men. And I think the general inefficiency of their shipyards was was documented you know they were saying that barcelona was probably one of the main hubs and they were saying you know it took ages to get uh you know the wood the rope whatever you needed to put all this stuff together they didn't have a centralized bureaucracy of the efficiency that the ottomans had which is what you need to pull together if you're going to uh, make fleets i mean armies are kind of slightly easier to do you can you can send out a general muster, you can collect people, but you've got to collect wood, you've got to collect rope, you've got to collect pitch, you've got to collect material for cannons, uh, you've got to have a different wood for oars. And this, these are quite sophisticated logistical skills, and they just didn't have the same level of, of, of uh, bureaucratic organization that the Ottomans had. And just to get into some of these specific battles, one of the first big ones was Rhodes. Um, to start off, what was the makeup of the Christians on Rhodes? Who were these kind of Christians that were kind of in the middle of the Ottoman Empire at this time? Well, um, this is a Greek island, but which had actually been taken by the Knights of St. John. Uh, and there are about 500 knights, on the, which doesn't sound, sound like many, uh, drawn from various different countries. Uh, they're pretty expert, actually, at siege defense. They had about 1,500 mercenaries. They had uh, local indigenous Greeks. And they also had the services of a very uh, experienced uh, Italian siege engineer called Gabriel Tadini, who was kind of a, um, you know, uh, a sort of a valuable piece of intellectual uh, technological capital. He, he had a great deal of experience of defending fortified places. Uh, they're defending a small island and, and actually a small city, which is actually kind of an advantage. So, um, so but there's, there's few of them and, um, you know, they're going to be confronted, obviously, with a much larger force. And what exactly happened at this battle? How did the Ottomans arrive? How long did the battle take? And ultimately, who won? The, the Ottomans arrive in um, June of um, 1522. They've got a great advantage with this, actually, that, of course, it's only 16 miles or something from Rhodes to the coast of Turkey. So logistically, it's, it's really quite manageable. Uh, Suleiman brings a very large army. He caught skilled siege engineers, miners, lots of men. He has huge amounts of, of human labor. Um, and a considerable amount of gunpowder gun artillery, uh, which is going to um, be very useful both in battering walls and in planting explosive mines. Having said that, um, this is a siege which lasts a very long time, six months. It became the habit of uh, 
Ottoman siege is to go very quick knockout blow, get this done in in uh, in six weeks. But the defence is very stubborn, and it really takes the form of the Ottomans putting their miners to work uh, to uh, dig. Uh, uh, trenches and then to uh, try and undermine the walls with the Christians countermining under Tadini uh, and trying to destroy their mines and um, so um, there's a considerable amount of, of gunpowder artillery at play and so it, it becomes a, a bitter slog for the Ottomans winter sets in and it's, it's a remarkable defensive effort by this small force who really keep the Ottomans at bay for a very, very long time until by um, towards the end of the year, um, early by December, their their curtain walls have been uh, demolished and there's really no further possibility of uh, of holding this uh, place any longer. And there's a negotiated um, settlement uh, and it's interesting that Suleiman it ends on quite a gentlemanly note actually Suleiman and the Grand Master of the Knights of St. John Philippe Villiers uh, meet and um, he allows the Knights of St. John to sail away uh, to anywhere they want which actually is going to be a very bad move because he's going to uh, be confronted with them again towards the very end of his life at Malta but um, this was a blow for Christendom. This was considered to be the the shield of of, of outer shield of Christendom, and taking it was, um, you know, a, a significant loss. And did the Christians essentially lose control of the Eastern Mediterranean after the fall of Rhodes? They did. Yes. I mean, Crete remains in Venetian hands until uh, about. 1640, but the Venetians are not active in uh, partisan Christian adventures. Uh, they get control from here of, of most of the ports and bases on the coast of uh, Greece. And um, so uh, really increasingly uh, the Eastern Mediterranean and Nephew Venetian merchants uh, engaged in in trade, but it becomes a no-go area, much more difficult if you haven't got places that you can put in at, and there really aren't any beyond Sicily. Um, after uh, the fall of Rhodes, uh, Cyprus is still held, of course, by uh, the Venetians, but again, Cyprus isn't, isn't playing the game, isn't playing the Christian game. Uh, so really, in terms of military activity, yeah, the Eastern Mediterranean is lost after 1522. <clears throat> and uh, around the same period, Charles V was leading a campaign um, against Tunis. What was his motivation for doing that and what exactly happened? Um, the um, His motivation really was that he was just uh, fed up with, um, <laughs> fed up with Barbarossa. And um, so he carries out a, um, uh, a massive strike, and um, which is extremely successful, uh, and succeeds in taking Tunis, uh, which is held for a while, but in an isolated kind of way. Unfortunately, Barbarossa gets away, 
And um, so, in a sense, the major objective of, of the operation, which is kind of to wipe out the pirate's lair, really uh, backfires. But it, it became a great symbolic triumph for Charles, who commissions giant tapestries of this of this moment of him as the you know the Christian king, uh, which he, he he takes whenever he goes on um, peregrination around Europe to his various uh, principalities. He has his tapestries taken with him. They're, they're you know they're good PR and you know demonstrate that here he is, the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, defending Christendom and, and pushing back you know, the, the infidel and so on. Uh, but it's it's an expensive adventure and, you know, the Christians are going to have a number of these uh, adventures that really never kind of solve the problem, which is that it's very difficult. It's extremely difficult at, at making attacks on the, on the coast of North Africa, really, as I said, because... The winds are complicated and you can risk a shipwreck. Obviously, the Corsairs must have had much better knowledge about how to how to manage this than, you know, large fleets. So um, but, you know, it was very good for the for the kudos, if you can call it, of uh, Charles. And what happened pretty much in the period between the time of the fall of Rhodes and the start of the siege at Malta? Well, we see uh, the Ottomans continue to expand. Um, they have an attempt, uh, a siege of Vienna, uh, which fails in 1529, I think. Um, they move north. Um, they enter Hungary. Uh, they shatter the Hungarian uh, uh, at a great battle at Mohac. Uh, uh, they, the raiding of the Corsairs in North Africa becomes uh, epidemic and um, vast numbers of people are abducted from the shores of Spain, uh, from Sicily, from Malta. They abduct the whole population of uh, Goza, the small island of Malta, 5,000 people. Um, uh, and... Um, so uh, th this raiding is having a uh, an an extraordinary uh, effect on the morale of Christian Europe. At the same time, the Knights of St John have uh, having pushed out of Rhodes, are uh, given Malta by Charles V, really with the proviso that they are now the front line and they've got to hold it. And um, the Knights of St John uh, have some effect they, they've only got a very small force of galleys but they wage a sort of counter piracy if you like plundering uh, supply lines as far east as they can which uh, is extremely irritating for the uh, for the prestige of Suleiman but generally uh, Christianity is on the back foot uh, there's existential fear in southern Europe, of the raids, of the push into um, uh, into the Balkans, and um, the burden of uh, responsibility of, of all this is falling heavily on Charles, uh, who more or less has a nervous breakdown in the uh, 
1550 he was on retreats into a monastery where he spends his time taking watches to pieces and putting them together again an extraordinary kind of metaphor for a man who can no longer control a vast empire and is trying to micro find a way of micromanaging his world uh, so it's um it, it's a um it's really one-way traffic at the same time barbarossa is being co-opted into the uh, imperial is Ottoman uh, system and it becomes uh, the Sultan's admiral and reconstructs the Ottoman navy in uh, in a way that will make it able to carry out major uh, rather than Corsair act as well as Corsair activity major uh, imperial fleets can set out and challenge the seas. And <clears throat> what made Malta important to both the Christians and the Ottomans? By the 1550s, uh, Malta is the front line. It's, it's, it's become the new roads, the shield of, uh, of Europe, if you like. And um, there's a feeling, the strong feeling that uh, if Malta falls, uh, Sicily will fall and you know, even the, even Rome is uh, uh, is uh, feeling the heat. Uh, there are massive ro- uh, raids on the heel of uh, of uh, of Italy on Otranto, where uh, the Ottomans land and massacre a large number of people. And the papacy at one point is at, at, at sort of 24 hours notice to evacuate Rome if they thought that the Ottomans uh, were going to raid, but they were raiding all the way down the West Coast. But so the the Knights of St. John are crucial, both psychologically and practically, uh, the gateway to Italy. Uh, At the same time, uh, they are are damaging, continuing to damage the prestige of Suleiman. They are capturing his ships. They are making some far long-range strikes into the eastern Mediterranean, uh, interfering with ships making the Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca, which set out, say, from Constantinople to Alexandria. And this is bad for morale and bad for his prestige as the great sultan. So they are a thorn in his flesh, flesh, a nest of vipers, as somebody put it. But Malta's important. Malta, if you take Malta, then you've got a base for a forward base that will more easily link uh, Istanbul with the Corsair activity at the far eastern end of of Africa, where the um, Barbarossa and the uh, and the and the pirates are holed up. So this is a strategic centre of the Mediterranean. And just to follow up, can you describe mm. what happened at the siege and how the Christians were able to hang on to the island? Um, the problem that the Ottomans have is that it's uh, it's a long logistically it's a long way to go uh, before um, and you have to take all your supplies with you. You can't. There's some possibility that they could be resupplied from North Africa, but really, there it's a it's a very long supply chain, and it takes them, you know, a while to get there. So they don't really get there till May. Uh, they will have to leave by September because the seas will become too rough. So, um, so you know, it, it's it, it's tricky. Um, 
on the the some dissension on the Ottoman side between the two Ottoman commanders. Solomon probably makes a mistake in in actually having two guys who compete with each other. Mustafa, who's the um, army commander, probably the overall commander, and Piale Pasha, the naval commander. Um, uh, Malta is close to Sicily. It can be resupplied. Um, it's uh, an, uh, quite an inhospitable climate. If, if anybody who's been to Malta will know that it's quite dry and barren. It doesn't provide anything. You can't live off the land, so you have to take everything with you. And curiously, um, defending a small small place places is somehow easier for uh, the Christians. They haven't got a large front. They've got a, a, a group of little forts all uh, linked together on peninsulas. And um, so, uh, so this combination of uh, long supply chains, a short period in which to uh, hold the siege, um, the chances of resupply from uh, Sicily make it a tough nut to crack. Uh, they hoped that the Maltese people, who probably weren't uh, fans of their overlords, uh, would defect, but they don't. They become loyal and they become, they remain a, a sort of fifth column uh, of support for the defend, defensive effort. And ultimately, the Christians are able to hold the island. Do you think this was a turning point in the conflict? This is an interesting one, and it's debated by historians who say that actually this uh, this was uh, you know a victory that led nowhere, that you know I didn't really make all that much difference. I tend to disagree with that. I, I think on the first land it was a psychological boost for Europe, which had been the Christian Europe, which had been suffering one defeat after another with the in remorseless advance of the Ottomans, but it also demonstrated really that it was uh, not really possible to reach far into the Mediterranean. And it was, it was you know, the Ottomans were, um, were operating behind, beyond strategically manageable uh, limits. So for, as far as the maritime conflict was concerned, I think it was the turning point. It meant really that the uh, coast of Algiers and Tunis and so on, the the, um, the pirate kings of um, North Africa are not going to be, although they were nominally under control of the Sultan, they're going to become more independent kingdoms with their own agendas and so on. So you're not really going to be able to get uh, a unified Islamic control of the sea and they're going to do things differently with you know without much so much interest really in what Suleiman wanted back in Istanbul so I think it was a turning point in conflict certainly for the maritime conflict uh, in the Mediterranean and only I believe it was a, that a few years few years later the Holy League is formed how and why was this league formed it was formed out of desperation, really. The papacy had been trying for quite a long time to line up the various different interests for a coordinated uh, defense. And these are 
He's not going to get much change out of the French. Um, these are Spain uh, and it's uh, the Habsburgs uh, and their Italian holdings in southern Italy and Sicily and Malta. Uh, the Venetians are the people with the best maritime know-how who on the whole are not very interested in waging holy war and much more interested in trading with the Islamic world and the uh, forces of the papacy itself. What, um, what really brings it into sharp focus was the fall of Cyprus in um, 1571, which was really, I mean, it was a Venetian holding rather than one particularly committed to holy war. But it rather brought the Venetians into, into line. They desperately needed help. The, um, Spain needs, desperately needs help because of the Corsair problem. And um, the papacy has quite a lot of money through uh, its papal revenues, its tithes from all from Catholic Europe. So the, um, there is a chance for uh, Pius V, who becomes uh, Pope just at that time, uh, who is extraordinarily uh, interested in to succeed where other people have failed and he puts in a major diplomatic effort to try and line up um, the uh, the different uh, disparate interests I mean uh, by this time uh, Charles has died Philip as king of Spain and he's got trouble in in the Netherlands so um, so in a, to a certain extent, it's money. He grants papal subsidies to these people, and um, it takes quite an effort to bring them together. Um, everyone has their own interests. I mean, uh, Philip's interested in people attacking Tunis. Well, he doesn't want to go beyond Malta, uh, uh, but he manages to, by effectively bribing people to a certain extent, uh, to bring the Venetians who distrust uh, Spain uh, and his own forces together in a joint effort. It was an extraordinary achievement, but he manages to do it in uh, 1571. It took months and, of work. And how long did it really take for all these ships from all these different city-states and fleets to come together and head off onto a unified campaign? And did they have really an overall goal um, after the fall of Cyprus, or is it simply just to try and do as much damage as they could? Um, this is an interesting one. I think there are different uh, strategic agendas. The Venetians wanted them to proceed uh, far into um, the uh, Eastern Mediterranean and get Cyprus back. The Spanish would really rather like to stop at Sicily, but there was a kind of unformed plan to sail east and confront the Ottomans. It takes months to bring the forces together. The Spanish are particularly slow. Um, it, uh, they're always complaining how long it takes for the uh, Spanish to requisition all the materials they need to get their fleet together. And um, they uh, 
they leave, uh, they don't, a fleet doesn't really leave uh, Spain until early June 1571, makes its way to uh, Sicily, gathers some more people there, and um, it's not, uh, meets the Venetians in uh, late September. It's happening all very, very slowly. It's almost too late into the season to wage, uh, to to fight sea battles. And I think there's quite a lot of foot dragging by the Spanish who really don't really want to get into this thing or go really beyond. Um, they'd really like to just defend their, their territory, which is Sicily and Malta. Um, and it takes kind of extraordinary people really to, to bring this whole operation uh, into uh, a kind of head-on collision with an Ottoman fleet. And what exactly led to the Battle of Lepento and what exactly happened? What leads to the Battle of Lepanto really, I think, is the role of Don Juan uh, of Austria, the illegitimate son of Charles V, who's desperate for glory. And he manages to inspire everybody. Look, we're going to go for this. Um, on the Ottoman side, um, uh, ditto, the uh, Ottoman commander is really uh, tasked with going out and fighting. So um, really, it's um, two people who are uh, kind of probably by directives, which are not very wise, to uh, head out and seek and destroy the enemy. And um, all the time there are wise voices like uh, Don Garcia of Toledo, who we talked uh, about earlier, who said, look, this is really risky, uh, you know, to risk all our fleets on one battle. Uh, you know, we need to think carefully and strategically. But it takes so long to bring these troops together. Uh, uh, you can't keep them at sea for very long. Disease tends to break out in, in the ships. Uh, so it's now or never to um, to to wage a, a battle. Each side is uh, deceived about the size of the opposition fleet, uh, largely because both sides, as they probe the shores of Greece, are met by some <laughs> Greek fishermen who, to each the scouts from each side, say the other side's our navy is very small. Uh, and so it's kind of a moment of horror when... Uh, on the 5th of October, 1571, these two fleets come in sight of each other and realize that they're about to engage in the mother of all sea battles. But Don Juan is an inspirational figure who dances on the deck of his ship as these two fleets uh, emerge in this, this collision of the heavyweights in, in, a, in an epic encounter. And... How long did this battle last? Was it over a period of days or was it just one decisive battle over one day? It's over in a matter of hours, pr probably in about six hours. In, you know, 40,000 men die. I think it's the fastest rate of slaughter of any battle until something in the First World War. It's absolute carnage. And um, out of which the Christians m m uh, merge victorious uh, an almost complete annihilation of the Ottoman fleet and 
it looks like a scene from the end of the world as, as they described it burning ships um people crying in the water and um it, it's a complete wipeout of an ottoman fleet it is a most extraordinary day of of warfare that uh you see warfare really in in the history of uh in of the history of sea battles and do you think the battle of lepanto was a decisive battle or was it simply one victory for the Christians, given that the Ottomans were able to rebuild their fleet of only a few years later? Again, this is controversial. And um, generally, historians rather like more to say, you know, sea battle, uh, battles are not are seldom influential in, in that kind of way. And again, it's referred to as a battle that led nowhere. Um, and the... Ottomans had their own euphemism for it. You know, it wasn't really a major defeat. It was called the Battle of the Dispersed Fleet, they call it in Turkish, i.e. that, you know, the fleet scattered and it was all okay. And the following year, they put out a new fleet, revealed a new fleet of 134 ships. Um, but um, I think, my, my personal view is that it was a decisive battle. Um, uh, it... it, it, it it was a decisive battle in that it would lead to the end of major sea warfare, because although um, uh, the Ottomans put out a fleet the following year, which didn't really do very much, the, this kind of sea warfare, the skills that you require in sea war are, are specialist, and there isn't a limitless supply of specialist seamen. Furthermore, the Ottomans relied very heavily on very skilled archers who had been who could lose, you know, whatever, three arrows in 30 seconds or something. But these are people who have been training since childhood and you can't replace these people. Uh, so it really signed, sealed the death knell of the great imperial contest for the Mediterranean. And we're going to see a withdrawal uh, 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 in the years that followed. So I think it was highly significant. I think it was a decisive battle. Uh, and it is going to uh, really lead to the disengagement of the, um, of the, uh, it's going to signal the end of the conflict. And a lot of this is to do with money. The cost of these fleets is extraordinarily uh, expensive. Um, Philip is going to default on his debts in 1575. Um, the uh, the fleets which the Ottomans put out are really pretty shoddy. Um, the Ottomans are going to end up uh, uh, debasing their currency. And I my my view is that this. Is, is, is not alone. You can't pin this alone on the Battle of Lepanto, but but on the cost of these sea wars, it's going to be the first moment of fracture in the Ottoman uh, imperial advance, and um, it is going to um, it's going to define the frontiers of the Mediterranean. It is going to lead to inflation and price rises in the Ottoman Empire, and we're going to see the beginning, I think, of 
the apex of Ottoman power, really. Uh, the costs of this sea war were, were expensive. Money, money, and money. Uh, and the, the, even, even the Ottoman, with all its resources, is not going to be able to sustain this kind of uh, rate of expenditure. There are going to be tax increases in the Ottoman Empire, um, the debasing of currency, and it is going to have an effect. So there generally is a drawdown in fighting. Uh, was there ever a formal peace treaty or were there ever negotiations between the Christians or Ottomans to formally end the conflict or was it sporadically kind of on and off over the following centuries? It uh, really does lead to a formal disengagement. That at 1580, um, the Spanish and the um, Ottomans, Ottoman Sultans sign a formal peace treaty. It's a stalemate, stalemate. And although we're going to go on see massive, Corsairs are continue to be a problem for successive centuries. Um, it really defines the frontiers of the Mediterranean. Uh, you know, who has what? Which part of it is going to be Islamic? Which part of it is going to be Christian? And, you know, with a line that runs from sort of diagonally, you could say, from Constantinople to uh, Morocco, effectively, and north of that line is going to be Christian, south of that line is going to be Islamic. And so, but there is a formal disengagement, yeah. And really, the, the, Med the Mediterranean as being an arena for imperial warfare is over. We're still going to have skirmishes and things, but we're not, no, both sides have realized that the game isn't worth the candle. And so this is really uh, the end, really, of this kind of thing. And of course, it's going to go with other things happening within the European arena where Europe is starting to explode out of Europe uh, into, the, uh, into the Atlantic with the age of discoveries and so on. And just to ask some concluding questions, do you mm. think the divide between uh, Catholics and the newly formed Protestant states in Europe ever prevented a unified coalition in facing the Ottoman threat? Um, well, both no and yes, <laughs> I think. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, yes, in terms of uh, the, the Protestant Europe is undoubtedly a trouble for uh, the Habsburg for having to divert a lot of uh, attention and energy into this. Uh, but of course, we also have um, the, it's not, it's, it's not just on, uh, you know, Catholics versus Protestants, it's also Catholics and Catholics, because um, uh, the, the French, uh, you know, lend aid to uh, the Ottomans. And so, in a sense, uh, the inability to have a unified coalition is based not just on fault lines in religious orthodoxy, but, uh, but national interests, uh, Spain versus France, uh, commercial interests, Venice and Genoa not being interested in uh, wanting to trade with the um, uh, with the Ottoman Empire, so there are commercial fault lines, there are national fault lines, and there are religious fault lines. And really, 
you know, these are always going to fragment uh, the uh, the interests and the ability of Europe to uh, def uh, combine. And this one rare moment when Pius V manages to bring them together for uh, one day, effectively, uh, the 5th of October, 1571, an extraordinary achievement was really it. And uh, never before and never again would there be a collusion, uh, uh, a combination of interests that held together and did anything kind of significant in terms of pan-European effort. And do you think that the Habsburgs and the Ottomans having so many other commitments elsewhere in their respective empires always prevented um, each other from bringing the full resources and weight of their empires? I think that's true. Yes, I certainly did. I mean, um, the great strength of whoever holds Constantinople is that you sit in the middle of, uh, you know, you're a bridge between uh, Asia and Europe, but you're also potentially threatened by on both sides. And they undoubtedly um, had, um, you know, trouble with Persia. Uh, there also, there, there's quite a lot of internal, uh, a certain level of internal revolt within the Ottoman Empire from uh, heretical um uh, Islamic groups uh, from uh, tribesmen who don't want to be coerced into, a, into an Ottoman state and so on. So everybody has their problems. Then they have all sorts of other problems. They have plague, they have famine. I mean, both, both lots of people have these, you know. Um, there are the ecological, uh, environmental, uh, pestilential problems that, that always... Um, cause trouble. And there is that despite, you know, I said that the Ottomans were kind of bureaucratically more efficient, but neither of these empires, if you want to just look at the Habsburgs and the Ottomans, had a, uh, a bureaucratic and uh, operational state really capable of sustaining efficiently the demands on it from in terms of its ambition and the, and the amount of land that it uh, tried to, um, you know, tried to manage. In addition, the Ottomans that uh, suffer from uh, a generational dysfunction, which is every time a Sultan dies, there's a fight between the sons. Uh, so there's a kind of a period of chaos, really. Um, so, you know, they've all both sides have dynastic problems. They've got uh, problems with uh, food supply, with uh, all kinds of other things. So, you know, neither side can continuously wage warfare. You know, they can't do it. There's too many other things. And it's very interesting to see that both Suleiman the Magnificent and Charles the, the Fifth are, are reduced to skeletal men by the time they die with the burdens of trying to, you know, sort of juggle 16 tonne a granite ball, if you like, for over a long period. So, you know, it, it's the, the development of nation states it will take a long time to get efficient enough to manage this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And overall, what do you think the legacy of these battles and conflicts are? I think um, it, um, it accelerates uh, the Mediterranean from the Christian point of view, becoming a backwater. Um, they're bottled in 
by the Ottoman Empire uh, on the eastern end. And it's really going to accelerate the, uh, the swing out into the Atlantic and that the uh, energy of, uh, of Europe is going to move north to uh, the entrepreneur, first to the Atlantic pioneers, really, first to Portugal and then to the mercantile republics of, of, um, of uh, merchant, m merchant states, if you like, of the Netherlands and of England. So uh, the Mediterranean is going to become less important. It's been the cradle of Europe for a long time. And um, as I say, it really defines the frontiers in Europe. Um, it's going to move the Ottomans really to concentrating their efforts, uh, battering away at uh, expansion into Europe. But there, for the reasons that I gave earlier on, the operational limits of how far they can expand based upon the time it takes to move armies uh, and campaign mean that, uh, you know, if Malta is the front line in uh, the, the Mediterranean, the first point at which they could reach given, you know, supply lines and so on, uh, Vienna becomes the, the the front line. The point they just can't quite take. It takes them, you know, three months to get there. They've got um, um, six weeks or you know whatever before uh, the rain set in uh, in order to take the city. So um, there will be limits. You know, the, the limits that they can reach, and, and these are really going to define the limits of the empire. So for both of them, uh, it's going to launch. Europe into a new dynamism beyond Europe, and it's really going to actually fix the frontiers of the Ottoman Empire. That they are, they can only expand as far as they can reach in the campaigning season, so, uh, and these are going to be defined uh, by um, by what has happened in this period. And for you, what has been the most interesting part of your research? Well, I enjoy going to look at the places, that's for sure. Um, you know, there's nothing like actually going and, and, you know, going looking at Malta and trying to work out where the Ottomans were and the Christians were, or going to Cyprus or Venice or, and so on. They're interesting. Um, from in terms of writing history, I think it's finding first-hand sources, particularly those which haven't been used before. That, that's exciting. Um, and I found, uh, you know, for the Siege of Malta, for example, there's a book called Bossio's History of the Knights of, uh, of, of St. John, written about 1600 in Italian, uh, which is obviously drawn on very good first-hand accounts by people who are actually at the Siege of Malta and who could describe how, you know, somebody did something. And these are sources which haven't been used or certainly haven't been used in, in English. And when you find these, that you know, and they're really exciting, you're using stuff for the first time. That's great. You know, that's really, um, that's really fantastic. So, you know, the rewards of, the rewards of of research. You know, you dig away and you dig away, and when you find something which is really, really interesting, I, you know, I'm, and my great interest is is hearing human voices. I think hearing first hand accounts, people saying I was there, I did that. Uh, 
you know, as I say, it may not necessarily be true, but it may be what somebody said at the time. And, you know, that that's a great reward for me. And my final question is, uh, what advice do you have for young people uh, getting into the field of history, whether it's uh, things that you did uh, when you started to get into history or things that you didn't do? Uh, just generally, what advice do you have? I think I'd say find what interests you as being, you know, I mean, it could be anything, you know, it could be, you know, it could be military history, it could be a certain period of history, it could be, you know, the history of slavery, it could be, you know, women's rights. Um, something that fascinates you, I think, firstly. Um, secondly, I would say, um, you know, from my point of view, you know, I'd say find uh, good first-hand uh, uh, sources for, for, for draw, to draw on. Uh, you know, stuff that you know that gives you that allows you to sort of touch the past. Um, there's a great deal to be said for going to places and imagining yourself in them, if that's possible. Uh, um, uh, try to look objectively. Uh, round your own opinions if you can you know we've all got um, uh, we, we, we all carry our own ways of looking at you know history whether we're you know uh, you know, uh, you know uh, socialist or a, you know a conservative in, in nature try and look round yourself and try and pr dig away and see who can you believe who can't you believe but I think above all you know, find stuff that fascinates you, that, you know, that touches you. And as I said, that my, my interest in their training goes back to my childhood and formative experiences. Um, and there may be formative stuff or stuff that really catches your interest, you know, uh, that, uh, that is yours alone or, you know, yours in. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that would be my advice. Find what, what you know, gets you going, uh, you know, what really kind of inspires you.